It is very important when we are reading any of the letters of the New Testament to zero in on any place where the letter writer tells us why he's writing what he's writing. Because more often than not, that is going to give you some sense as to where his priorities are, what it is that he is so caught up about. And that is most certainly the case as we return our attention today to 2 Peter chapter number 3. And we'll go all back to verse number 1 so that we can get this context fully in our mind again. This is all being written down, I think, probably in the spring, maybe the very earliest part of the summer of 64. So basically 31 years after uh, Pentecost and the birth of the church. And Peter writes, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. That's a focus in on the Old Testament scripture, particularly in its prediction of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So that's a focus on New Testament stuff. Uh, The gospel message, the gospels which recorded that gospel message, the Acts, uh, the letters of Paul, the letter of James, all of these focused on the idea that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and He is the Savior, he is the Lord, he is the ascended um, high priest of heaven, and he is the coming King of kings and Lord of lords. All of that is bundled up here in what Peter is writing about. He says, I want you guys to remember all of that. You might remember earlier he said that we have everything we need for life and godliness. And when he wrote that, he seems to have had in mind the Scripture, the written Word of God. So he is focused on God's message that we already have. And then he says this, verse verse 3, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers, mockers, people who make fun, will come in the last days. Now understand, the last days is actually a reference to all the time from Jesus' first coming up through his second coming. That's all the last days. We are living in the last days, just like Peter was living in the last days. Uh, So Peter says, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So that's that leadership problem again that he was just talking about people that are focused on their own selfish gratification. And they will mock the idea that Jesus is coming back. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so this is is definitely the way some people treat the story of Jesus ascending. 
It's like, so, he said he was coming back. Where is he? Taking a long time, isn't it? And that was happening only 30 years after Jesus had gone away. Here we are, 1,990, working on 91 years since the gospel story happened. And he's still not back. And so people will say, you Christians, you guys are all on about this whole idea of Jesus being back again. But you know what? It's always been the same. It's always been progressing through time, just like uh, it was in the ancient times. Um, And actually, there is some element of evolutionism or evolutionary thinking here, um, and that is that uh, everything just moves forward on its own. There is no divine intervention to be looked at or expected or thought about. Peter's response is this. Verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. So Peter goes back to the foundational book, Genesis. He says, when people talk like everything is just like it's always been, uniformitarianism, if you will, they have forgotten catastrophism of history. That God first created the heavens and the earth out of this big pool, this reservoir of matter, liquid matter. And then he started shaping that liquid matter into solid physical things, which then led to the creation of vegetation and the creation of animals and then the ultimate creation of humanity. And all that came through the Word of God. God spoke and it happened. But that's not where he stops. He starts with creation, but then he goes to this, verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that was then existed was deluged with water and perished. So he says, not only did God create things out of liquid matter, that is, out of water, when sin came into the world, Genesis chapter 6, then God used liquid to restart it, to recycle everything and start fresh. Uh, And only eight individuals came through on the ark from the old, destroyed, drowned world into the new world. So things have not been the same since the very beginning. They have been radically altered by the catastrophe of the flood. And that really does uh, help us when we're looking um, at the evidence of the world, the sedimentary layers and things. 
uh, to appreciate that that time cannot really be evaluated from all those layers in the way that the uniformitarian groups want to, where everything is always progressed at the exact same pace, uh, because all of those sedimentary layers came from the flood in one year. Now, Peter, though, is not sidestepping into uh, the discussion of evolution and creationism, whereas I find it easy to do that. Uh, his point is judgment. That's where his mind goes. Judgment on those that are constantly refusing the testimony of God. Verse 7, but by the same word, what word? The word which created the world out of water in the first place, and the world which, dis, uh, excuse me, the word which was used to destroy the world with the flood and save a remnant in the ark, by that same word of God, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter's point, as he's starting to wind down in his letter, is that instead of thinking that God will never get around to judging us, understand it's coming, but it's coming on his time schedule, not ours. Because the next thing that's coming from the Word of God is the second coming of Jesus Christ, which will bring about the end of this heaven and earth and the arrival of the new heaven and new earth. Now, since we're talking about the time scale of God here, Peter uh, makes an allusion back to the book of the Psalms uh, to a, a unique psalm because it is one of the only ones that's attributed specifically to Moses. And so this is Psalm number 90. And uh, I'm going to read Psalm number 90 to you here uh, in just a moment, because I want us to have the same benefit of background uh, that Peter's readers would have had uh, by having been aware of this psalm of Moses uh, and how it is focused on God's judgment and how short our lives are here on planet Earth when compared to the eternity of God. Now, keep in mind that Moses probably wrote this during the Exodus, uh, during that 40-year time out, when people are dying on a regular basis from that generation that came out of Egypt, but which, because of their rebellion, were not going to be allowed to go into the Promised Land. And so many of them didn't make it 
to old age, per se, because of their rebellion. And so this is what he writes, Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God is before creation. He is the creator. Verse 3, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. Now that's a reference to the judgment that came in the Garden of Eden because of the sin of Eve and Adam. Uh, They were told that they were going to die, that their bodies would return to the dust. Verse 4, now this is where time scale starts coming in. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. So the sense that you get from that is that God doesn't really pay attention to time like we do because he's timeless. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and it withers away. So we've got this these pop-up plants when it starts raining. Uh, they pop up and they produce their beautiful blooms. And not too long after that, they start shriveling up and drop their blooms because they go through their life cycle really, really fast. And so Moses was taking note of that and saying, that's kind of how it feels like to be humans when compared to eternity. For we have been consumed by your anger. See, that's the reason why death, physical death, came into the world, is because of judgment. By your wrath we've been dismayed. You've placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We've finished our years like a sigh. Well, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. So the average lifespan, apparently, right around this time in history, was about 70. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it's gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger, your fury, according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. I'm going to let you read the rest of the psalm on your own, uh, but you see the sense there that even the life that we have, if it reaches 70, 80 years, it is nothing compared to eternity. Nothing. And God, who lives outside of eternity, outside of time and space, time means nothing to him. So when people start complaining, where's Jesus? I thought he said he'd be back. It's been 30 years. Where is he? It's been 300 years. Where is he? It's been 600 years. Where is he? It's been 1,991 years. Where is he? Doesn't matter because 
you're laboring under the assumption that our time scale is important to God. And it's not. Verse number 8 in 2 Peter 3. With that background from Psalm 90, let's read this properly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, we have prophecy teachers from way back in church history that have taken this passage and say, look, look, right here, it says that every day prophetically is a thousand years. And they have developed this time scale prophecy that there were going to be 6,000 years of human history up to the time of the second coming of Jesus and then the thousand-year millennium. And uh, therefore, uh, they have predicted when the second coming of Jesus had to be. Now, the first guys that actually did this in church history, they were doing it um, in the first few hundred years of church history because they studied the Old Testament from the Greek Septuagint, and by their standard, 6,000 years of Earth's history would end right around 500 A.D. Now, they were wrong um, because they were misapplying the Scripture. Uh, We still have today, though, people who use the Masoretic text of the Old Testament who say, we're approaching the end of 6,000 years of Earth's history. Jesus will be back any moment. And guess what? They've got a problem because they're misapplying a piece of Scripture. So we've got to rightly divide the Word of God. Peter's point here, as you can see for yourself, is not that God equates one day to a thousand years, but rather timescale on human terms means nothing to him. It doesn't matter that a thousand years has passed. That's no big deal for God. It doesn't matter that almost 2,000 years have passed since Jesus went away. That's no big deal to God. Jesus could delay his second coming for another 10,000 years, and that would be no big deal to God because the time scale of humanity means nothing. This is the thing that matters to God. Verse number 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what drives God in his delay of the second coming of Jesus? The fact that he wants as many people as possible to repent and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Every day that God delays the second coming of Jesus gives the opportunity for more people to come into salvation. And so that is Peter's point. Now, in regard to the second coming, though, he does pass on exactly what Jesus taught him. Verse 10, 
but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Uh, Now, what did Jesus mean by that when he was teaching it? He means that thieves don't send you engraved invitations saying, Dear homeowner, I will be in your neighborhood between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning on next Tuesday. They don't do that. Uh, Jesus says if that's what they did, then the homeowner would never allow his house to be broken into because he'd be waiting there. Uh, So Jesus' second coming is going to be unannounced. Uh, And I guess we should be a little bit more precise on this. The day of the Lord, which is the final three and a half years, which culminates in the second coming of Jesus. That that three and a half year period is going to kick off uh, with no previous warning signs. Uh, As Paul wrote, he says people will be saying peace and security and then sudden destruction will come upon them in a moment. Uh, Jesus and Daniel and the book of Revelation all describe the kickoff of the final three and a half years being the sun going dark, the moon going blood red, stars falling from the sky. Uh, That will not be something to be missed. But moments before that, it'll be business as usual. So that's what Jesus meant. That's what Peter means. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then, in connection with that final three-and-a-half-year period, and now we kind of focus on the tail end of it, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, or the heavenly elements is the literal word, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed or they'll be found, or they will be burned up. There's different manuscripts here at this point. Uh, But the idea when we go and study the other places where this is mentioned is that when Jesus does split the sky, when the trumpet of the Lord sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first, the living in Christ will be transformed, And at the same time that's happening, while they're being caught up together, meeting the Lord in the air, the old heaven and old earth are going to pass away with a great big sound, um, kind of a whistling sound or some sort of noise. Um, it, It seems as if God will allow whatever's holding things together at the atomic level to just let go. And everything will go out of existence. And then, simultaneous with that, he will bring into existence the new heaven and the new earth. And um, all the old stuff belonging to mankind will disappear. Um, The way I kind of picture it is, I think we'll end up with a virgin earth again. And all the people uh, that are on the old earth will suddenly find themselves on this new earth and facing the consequences of being in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
And uh, if uh, your, your works have not been good, then you will be called to account for that. Now, Peter's application is specifically for Christians at this point. He says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Okay, so since you and I as Christians know that planet Earth and everything in it is scheduled for demolition at the trumpet of the Lord, since we know that's coming, Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. So since you know that Jesus is coming, and you know that all of the non-Jesus stuff will be judged, what type of life should you be living? And the answer is, you should live a holy life, that is, a, a life like God. You should live a godly life, that is, a life like God. Uh, John will later write about the fact that everyone who has their hope in the second coming, purifies themselves even as he, Jesus, is pure. Verse 12, uh, Peter says, waiting for and even hastening the coming of the day of God. So you look forward to it and you work toward it. Uh, because of which, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Uh, this world is going to lose integrity, structural integrity. It's just going to come apart at the seams and disappear. And so we cannot invest in this world and most certainly not invest in the works of this world, that is, the sinful activities of this world, the power players of this world. Instead, we've got to be focused on what's coming next. Peter says, verse 13, according to his promise, whose promise? God's promise, Jesus' promise. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to being in paradise, the new heaven and new earth that it is, is described in different passages in the Old Testament and in different passages of the New Testament. It is the return to what God originally intended for us there in the first two chapters of Genesis. Uh, it's going to be spectacular. And when we stay focused on that, we won't be so caught up in the current place that's overrun with sin.